Would you then like to turn to the book of Romans in the New Testament, the book of Romans and chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, and I'm going to read from the first verse. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his human nature, was a descendant of David, and who, through the spirit of holiness, was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his namesake we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. As we've been looking at this section over recent weeks, we've seen how Paul is introducing himself to people who don't as yet know him. He's very much hoping he'll be able to visit them and he sends this letter on in advance so that when he comes, he's really no stranger to them, that they will understand who he is and what he's about. So he's sending this letter, whether or not he ever intended, when he started here in verse 1, to write 16 chapters, we will never know. I kind of suspect he thought of sending a postcard, but kind of, it just kept coming, and so eventually we get this mighty, massive letter. Uh, but he's just telling them that he wants to come, he wants them to pray for him, and he wants them to understand who he is and what his message is. And his message is about God's exciting announcement, God's announcement about his son. This son who has been appointed son of God with power, He had been son of God in weakness, his time on earth. He was able to be rejected. He was able to be cruelly treated and ultimately killed with a horrendous death. Son of God in weakness, but by his resurrection, son of God with power. That's Paul's message, what God has announced about his son. And with the resurrection, he's saying a whole new age has dawned, an age of the spirit of holiness. And he says then, he introduces himself, he says that um, we have received grace and apostleship through this wonderful Savior. Uh, for, he says, this, this apostleship, this uh, mission that he's been given is for the obedience of faith in all the nations for the sake of his name. Last week we were looking at that first phrase, the obedience of faith. Uh, And we're going to move on now in verse 5 to look at the sphere of this. uh, Among all the nations or among all the Gentiles for the sake of his name. But we saw last week that the context of it all is the climax of verse 4. And verse 4 does work towards a climax. Jesus Christ our Lord. Can I at this point say incidentally, just referring to last week for those who are following this through the website, uh, I gather it didn't get recorded last week, uh, and so for those who are not here but they listen on the website, sorry you missed it, you should have been here. 
But uh, we looked at this matter of the, uh, the obedience that comes from faith, and we saw it's in that context of Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 4 works to that climax. He is the Lord. Now, when we use the expression, Jesus Christ our Lord, for us, it, it can almost be the way of signing off a prayer. We pray, then we say, through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. And it's the way of saying, I'm finished. And, and it's a phrase that can just trip off the tongue. It's a, a mere title. It's formal. It can mean no more than that to us. But for Paul, this is the amazing statement that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is supreme. He rules over everything. He is God. And it's because Jesus Christ is Lord that the appropriate response is obedience. That's, that's the context of this whole thing. It's not a mere title. It's an awed acknowledgement of who Jesus is, supreme. He's the one then to whom, when we come to him and find him as saviour, we hand over the title deeds. We give him the keys. He's the Lord. You can't separate him as saviour from him as Lord. When we receive him, we receive who he is. And therefore we give ourselves to him, not reluctantly, but gladly. Paul says, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, a glad, delighted slave because of who Jesus is. He's the Lord. And so, hence, the obedience of faith. Faith, we saw, as an act of obedience, and obedience as an act of faith. Both. We, we believe him because that's the appropriate thing to do. That's an act of obedience to him, to believe him. And because we obey him, with, because we believe him, we'll obey him with faith. faith. Obedience as an act of faith, faith as an act of obedience. That's our personal commitment. But for Paul, the fact that Jesus is Lord doesn't just have personal implications. It's universal in its implications. And hence he goes on to speak about obedience of faith among all the nations. Jesus is not just kind of the Christian that rule over the Christian world. He's not just the one that Christians acknowledge. He is Lord over everything. His lordship is universal. Every nation, everything. Because he is the one, the Bible tells us, through whom everything that exists has been made. John tells us that right at the start of his gospel. In John chapter 1 and verse 3, through him, that is Jesus, through him all things were made. Without him, Nothing was made that has been made. He is Lord of everything because everything derives its existence from him. He's not just God over a compartment of the world, the Christian bit. You know, there are other gods that others ought to. Hey, everything that exists came into being through him. Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 6 again makes a hugely important statement about Jesus. Well, he says in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 8, For us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came 
and through whom we live. Everything came through Jesus. He is Lord. Not just everything that we know in this world either, because Paul, when he's writing to the Ephesians, in Ephesians 1.21, says of Jesus that he is far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. He is supreme over all spiritual powers. We don't understand them. We can only speculate, and it's not good to speculate even. But he reigns over all rule, authority, power, and dominion. He is Lord. It's a massive statement that is universal, cosmic in its implications. All powers are subject to him. And so Paul declares Jesus Jesus Christ, our Lord. But let's just get the feel of it. When Paul is saying that, he's not just giving cold dogma. He's expressing it with warm devotion. You know, there are some people who can state truths, and you can't argue with what they're saying. It's true. But the way they say it just seems so kind of aggressive You feel kind of pinned back against the wall when they say it because they believe it. Paul isn't speaking like that. He's enthusing about Jesus. He's enthusiastic. He is passionate about who Jesus is. You see it again and again in this letter. It comes up in verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And then later on, when in chapter 7, he's answering a question that he himself has raised. He says, um, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? And in chapter 7, he's looking at, well, if the law is the cause of our problems, is it wrong? He says, not at all. Nothing wrong with the law of God. The problem is us. And so he expounds the problem that is us as we try to obey the law. And we can't. And he, he shows how just trying to obey the law without without the the saving knowledge of Jesus, leads you to despair. What a wretched man I am. He says, who will rescue me from this body of death? But then he can't stop himself. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He can't, even when he's trying to seriously say, talk about the Lord, he still can't stop praising God. And it just comes through again and again. He's passionate about who Jesus is. Let's make sure But in declaring what we believe, we never, never bring just cold doctrine. Let's make sure that the truth has warmed our hearts and that we love Jesus. And that's why we believe what we believe, because we love him. He's wonderful. Indeed, the scripture says back in the Old Testament, in the prophet Isaiah, when his speaking about this one who is going to come, saying more than I guess he could ever have understood in Isaiah 9 and verse 6. He speaks of this child that is going to be born, and he says the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, 
everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end, and so on. He, this is the Lord, and he's wonderful. He's wonderful. And so Paul is enthusiastic about Jesus and about the fact that he is Lord. And hence he, he speaks of the implications through him, we received grace and apostleship for the obedience of faith among all the nations. If you're using, as I'm using the NIV, it says among all the Gentiles. If you have one of the other popular versions, the ESV, that says among all the nations. Both are absolutely legitimate translations of the word. And to get a bit technical at this point, the same word in Greek, can be translated either as Gentiles or nations, and your translation depends on your understanding of the meaning of the word we in verse 5. Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship. If you're taking notes, please don't bother to take notes at this point, okay? I'm just giving you a little detail. Who is the we referring to? If Paul is just using it of himself, as sometimes authors do, we did this and we did that, when you mean I did this and I did that. If Paul is using it of himself, then Paul, Paul's particular sphere is the Gentiles. So if he's talking about himself, you translate it Gentiles. If, on the other hand, he's referring to the apostles, we, the apostles, received grace and apostleship, then it would be the nations, because it's a wider sphere. So it all depends on your interpretation of the word we, which is crashingly unimportant, but I just mention it for the sake of completeness. And obviously the NIV translators decided this is Paul speaking of himself, so they put in the word Gentiles. The ESV translators took it the other way and put nations. Both are right. No version scores over any of the others, let me say. At least in this instance. <laughs> But, so, but the word means, it's the normal Greek word for the nations. And certainly, as, even as far as Paul is concerned, he's, not, he's, he's got a specific ministry towards the Gentiles. Gentiles, of course, everyone who is not a Jew. As far as the Jews are concerned, the, the nations, that's everyone else, the Gentiles. But Paul also has a ministry towards the Jews. And so he says in verse 16 about this gospel, it's the power of God for everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentiles. Indeed, if you turn back one page, you'll probably arrive at Acts 28, and there you'll see Paul in Rome. He did get there, of course. And you read there about him talking with the Jews, arguing with them, trying to persuade them that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is the one that was promised. He's trying to convince them from the law of Moses and from the prophets and so on. They won't believe him. There's a dispute. And he says, therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. So Paul goes to the Jew first always and the Gentile. His, his passion is that people, without any distinction, that people should know who Jesus is, that people should know God's wonderful announcement that he has sent his son, that Jesus has come. It's for Jew and Gentile, 
Paul's heart is for all of them. He says in verse 14, I'm bound to Greeks and non-Greeks, to the wise and the foolish. He says it's the, power, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. When Jesus was raised from the dead, his resurrection, his resurrection meant that suddenly the whole thing explodes out from an exclusively Jewish situation. The whole thing that had, Jesus comes to his own people, he, he ministers just within a pretty narrow sphere. But the resurrection marks an explosion out. At the resurrection, the Jewish Messiah goes global. And suddenly the message is for all nations to the ends of the earth. Why? Because God made the whole world. Because God made everyone. And if you go right back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapters 1 and 2 shows how God made everything. In Genesis chapter 3, you read of the first man that God made, Adam, and Eve, his wife. We read how they chose to disobey God. At that point, they are humanity. They are the first couple God has made them. Humanity then, in the form of Adam and Eve, disobey God. Humanity then moves from relationship with God into rebellion against God. Humanity moves into sin. And hence the Bible tells us, all have sinned. Or, all sinned. When Adam and Eve sinned, that's humanity. This is why the gospel goes global, because everyone is in exactly the same condition. God's heart has always been for this world that he made. He didn't create the world and then say, and within all of this, I'm just going to focus on one little tract of land in the Middle East. That's all I'm really concerned about. He made the world. And he made all the people who are in the world. And he sees all the people in the world are all, as it were, in Adam. They've all sinned. They don't know God. They were made to know God and to bring glory to God and to represent God in creation. But they've turned their back on God. God sees the world that he's made. He always has done. But he has a promise. He, he calls a promised people. And they are the ones through whom the world is to be reached. And his promised people never understood that. Again and again, he spoke to them about the world. Do you remember the story of Jonah, a prophet? Prophets are supposed to understand God's heart. But God speaks to Jonah and says, I want you to go to Nineveh. And Jonah says, Nineveh? They're Gentiles, they're unbelievers, they're evil people, they're wicked. I'm not going to Nineveh. And so he tries to go the other way. You know the story. God goes after him. Thrown into the sea. Fish comes, gobbles him up. The fish swims to the land, spews him out. And he emerges. The experts tell us he will have emerged totally bleached by the gastric juices of the inside of this fish. And so now you have this absolutely white man, white hair, white beard, smelling of fish, coming to Nineveh and saying, repent. Well, they did. <laughs> they would. And so you get the whole city repenting, and, and Jonah is annoyed. They don't deserve mercy because they're outsiders. Tragic. 
They had just this narrow view. He's our God and only our God and no one else is ever to know. And yet God time and again makes it clear. This is for the world. Do you ever read the book of Psalms? I hope you do. Wonderful, wonderful. Meditations, songs of joy, songs of complaint, whatever. It's all there in the book of Psalms. But in the second Psalm, there is a song about Jesus and about the nations. And in Psalm 2 and verse 7, the Lord says, You are my son, today I became your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. That's, what, that's the father addressing his son, Ask me and I will make the nations yours. So you know one of the first temptations that Jesus had? The devil said to him, bow down and worship me and I'll give you the nations of the world. Now God has said to him, ask me and I'll give you the nations of the world. That was the first temptation. Turn another way. But God says to his son, the nations, the ends of the earth, your possession. And so the prophet Isaiah again and again, we won't look at all, there's so many references we could look at, but just look at one, Isaiah 60 says, Arise, shine, your light has come, the glory of the Lord rises upon you. Darkness covers the earth, thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes, look about you, all assemble and come to you. There's God coming to his people. And because God comes to his people, nations, the prophet says, will come. So many other references. Isaiah particularly was a prophet who saw it. This thing is not just for Israel. It's too small a thing, he says, just to restore Jacob. It's for the nations. God's heart is for the world that he has made. And so Jesus comes confines himself, as we say, to just one narrow territory, calling disciples, teaching them, showing the nature of God's kingdom, healing the sick, expelling demons, miracles, walking on water, turning water into wine, amazing things, just for a few people. But when he's risen, then he says, now go into all the world. Go make disciples of all nations. So he's speaking to people who have never traveled outside their home country. He's talking to people who are basically kind of villagers, really. Tiny worldview. And to them, he says, this risen Savior says, now it's the world. Go into all nations. Make disciples of all nations. He says to them, wait in Jerusalem till the Holy Spirit comes on you, Acts 1.8. He said, you'll be... Filled with power when the Spirit comes. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The promise that the Father gives to the Son in Psalm 2. Ask of me, and I'll give you the nations. Now the Son says to his disciples, now it's the nations. Go to them. My Spirit in you, you now go to nations. Jesus gives this global commission for the simple reason that everyone has sinned. Everyone is in Adam. Everyone is in the same predicament 
created by a holy God. They've rebelled against a holy God. Ultimately, they will face a holy God. Whether they believe in him or not, all ultimately will face their creator. And everyone is in the same plight. Everyone has sinned. So everyone needs a remedy for sin. And there's only one remedy for sin, and that is Jesus. Yeah, there are many world religions, but no world religion deals with this issue of sin. No world religion offers a saviour. Jesus is the only saviour. No one comes to the Father, Jesus said, except through me. That is why we see a world in a terrible, terrible plight, and there's one answer. Therefore, that one answer must go to the world. Everyone needs to know about Jesus. There's only one gospel, only one name through which people can be saved. That is Jesus. Therefore, the world needs to hear. And so Paul says here in verse 16 of chapter 1, it's the power of God, this gospel, for the salvation of everyone who believes. First the Jew, then the Gentile. Why? Because this gospel is an announcement of a righteousness from God. That's what people need. Because everyone sinned. They need righteousness. And this gospel offers it. And it is for the whole world. In chapter 3, verse 23, Paul says, uh, having said there's no difference between different people, he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone is in the same plight. Everyone sinned. Everyone has fallen short of God's glory. Therefore, everyone needs this gospel. Verse 29, in that same chapter, Romans 3, is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there's only one God who will justify the circumcised through faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. One gospel for the whole world. And so Paul says we receive this commission for the obedience of faith among all Nations. He's got a massive worldview. All nations need to hear. All nations means all places and all people. Every land and every racial grouping. It's for everyone. It's a huge vision. As we grow up as Christians... As we come to some kind of maturity, then our heart increasingly will be for nations. We don't have these flags here just because otherwise the balcony would look a bit boring. The flags are not there just to decorate the building. It's to say, hey, come on, we need to see. This is global. Just a sample of some flags so that we think nations. And as you come to maturity as a Christian, you'll start praying for nations. You'll start praying for countries that you've never been to and you maybe have no desire to ever go to, but you realize there's one gospel that is for everyone. There are countries today where it is perilous in the extreme to convert to Christ. We know of it. Are we praying? In in our prayer times, yes, we will pray for things that we're doing. And sometimes I'll say, let's pray for another nation. And you hear a sort of bit of a murmur. And we need to grow in this. We need to grow. Jesus said, he quotes the prophets in uh, Mark chapter 11. You'll read it. Uh, Mark 11 
and verse 17, when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem for the last time, he goes to the temple, he sees all the disgraceful things happening in the temple, he clears the temple with passion from God, getting out all the money exchange and all the stuff that's going on. And then he says this, quoting the prophets, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Now, obviously, originally that meant a house of prayer to which all nations can come. There's that promise. What God is doing is for everyone. But it has a double meaning. A house of prayer for all, praying for all nations. God wants a church where we're thinking every nation, every people group, and we will pray. We will pray for countries where it is dangerous to convert. We'll be praying for Pakistan. We'll be praying for Afghanistan. We'll be praying for the Yemen. We'll be praying for countries you know, where it's not dangerous but just unlikely. Japan, China, whatever. We will pray for nations that we're never likely to visit. But we think world because God thinks world. Train yourself to glean information. And pray. Paul, Paul knows so little about the world, because most of it hasn't yet been uh, discovered. He knows about the Roman world. Uh, America hadn't been discovered as yet. What a happy existence he had. And, sorry, I shouldn't say that. and all sorts of other places haven't yet been discovered. But the world, is, it's only the Mediterranean really, and maybe singing towards Spain, he knows about that. Does he know that Great Britain existed? Poor man, he probably didn't. But he's still thinking, I want to press on. And when he's writing to the Romans, he's saying, I want to go to Spain. Not for his holidays, because there are people there who need the gospel. Obedient for the obedience of faith among all nations. A huge vision. Jesus is Lord. That's the vision. Jesus is Lord. means he's Lord over everyone and every place. He's got a huge vision of God. And so he says, for the sake of his name, the obedience of faith among all nations for the sake of his name. What's then, what, what's driving Paul's passion? What's the explanation of what he's saying here about all nations. Is it some kind of dislike of other religions? Some kind of sectarianism? Is it maybe a love of travel? I heard a question posed recently about Christian missions. Short-term mission. Is it Christian tourism? Yeah, we can say we're into mission, but actually we just want to travel the world. Is that what Paul's into? He, just, uh, he wants to get some stamps on his passport. What drives him is Jesus. He's not against other religions, and he's not against anything. He is for Jesus, for the sake of his name. You see, Paul is steeped in Scripture He's steeped in the prophets. He's, he knows the scriptures. And he has now understood it all points to Jesus. It's all about him. It's got into his very spirit that Jesus is the one the world is waiting for. 
And Jesus must rule over the nations. Ask of me and the nations are yours. The ends of the earth, your possession, God says. He sees Jesus as the center of it all. And that's his passion. It's for the sake of his name. His passion comes from a mind that's full of scripture and a heart that's full of devotion to Jesus. Mind full of scripture, heart full of worship, that's passion. Got to go. Got to tell people. Got to speak about him. It's not just an obligation, I must do some witnessing. But I, he can't hold this in. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he says. He will talk about Jesus to anyone. And he does. And suffers for it. But he's still going to talk. Because he loves the name of Jesus. For the sake of his name. The name of Jesus, of course, means his reputation. He's got a name. He's got a reputation. Beyond that, it means his glory. For the sake of his name. So that glory comes to Jesus. He's the Lord. And for the sake of his name, the Lord, his reputation, then people must submit to him. People must honor him. If he's the Lord, then people must submit for that lordship to be real. You can't call him Lord and not do what he says. Obedience is the whole thing. And so for the sake of his name, he wants to see nations obeying him, but it's for the sake of his name. Sadly, church history is riddled with sad examples of people who have done things not for the sake of his name, but for the sake of their own name. People who do things to get a bit of a reputation, to be famous. It's human nature. It goes right back to the beginning. You read about it in Genesis where you get those sad people who said, let's make a tower that reaches to heaven. Let's make a name for ourselves. God comes and scatters them. And it happens. It happens in the church today, sadly. It's part of human nature. But Paul is not into that. It's for the sake of his name. He's not trying to make sure everyone knows the name of Paul. Have you ever heard any of those preachers who, time and again while they're preaching, they keep mentioning their own name? I've listened to some. I don't know if you have. You sort of count up how many times they mention their own name. You know, someone said to me, they say, and then they mention their name. And you think, yeah, well, whatever else, you do discover the name of the preacher. I am anonymous. <laughs> we want to declare the name of Jesus. It's all about him. Paul, Paul's passion is for the sake of his name. So he arrives in Rome, a prisoner. He's going to suffer a cruel death, but it's for the sake of his name. He's not looking for prosperity, popularity for himself, or any of that stuff. He wants people to know about Jesus. He says a quite remarkable thing when he writes to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 1. It seems like uh, Paul was in trouble, and some of his enemies wanted to make the most of that. And so, because Paul was in trouble, and uh, somewhat confined in prison, then others are now kind of trying to sort of steal his thunder, steal his audience, perhaps, take over. And so he says in Philippians 1 and verse 15, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. Others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love. He says the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely, 
supposing they can stir up trouble for me. That's what's happening. People, there are preachers out there taking over because Paul is now unable to be so mobile, so public and so on. People are trying to take over. But how does Paul respond to that? He says, the important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Wow. Even when people are preaching out of rivalry, he says, yeah, but they're preaching Christ. I'm glad about that. That's his heart. It's for the sake of his name. That's what he wants. The name of Jesus to be known. And so our passion, as we grow in God, will be, we want every people, every place to know about Jesus because we love Jesus. We're not trying to build our church. We want to see it grow for the sake of his name. We're not trying to build our reputation. We're not forever going on about the movement we belong to. We want that movement to be known internationally. I'm not even mentioning it. Get that. It's about Jesus. It's about for the sake of his name. It's no individual, no church, no movement, no denomination or whatever. It's Jesus. It's for the sake of his name. We want his name known because we will have a kind of indignation that he's unknown in so many places, in this country, in this city, maybe in your street, maybe where you work, maybe in your college or whatever. He's unknown. Or if his name is known, it's misrepresented. People are ignorant of who Jesus is. We'll feel indignant, not at them, but because of him. I think it's wrong that he's misrepresented. It's wrong that he's maligned as he is. It's wrong that he's blasphemed. It's wrong that people do it in woeful ignorance. We want them to know. He's wonderful. We don't want them to misrepresent him in this way. We want them to know who Jesus is. Paul is passionate about Jesus. It's devotion to him. And as we grow in God, as we come to love Jesus, we'll have that indignation. It's not right that people have been sold a lie. It's not right that they're in some other religion that will never save them. And they'll ultimately stand before the living God and it's too late. It's not right. We'll be indignant that the devil holds people in darkness and that, that will cause us to be passionate about the sake of his name. It's affection for his name as well. Indignation that he's maligned, but affection for him. The name Jesus. You know, back in old times when people sang hymns, there are so many hymns that may be a bit sentimental, but just about loving the name of Jesus. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Sweetest name I know. Some of the songs we used to sing when we were little. But about Jesus, don't you love that name? It's the Savior. The one that God sent into the world. And we love his name. We want to hear people loving that name. We want to hear people saying it with reverence and delight. Because he's wonderful. We want to have vision. Vision to see people, communities, cities, nations honoring him. 
When I was very young, well, I guess it was, I was probably about 10, I was involved in something that, that uh, well, I guess has affected me ever since. When I was 10, around 10, someone who subsequently became very famous but then was relatively unknown, someone by the name of Billy Graham came to the United Kingdom. Now, his name is well known now, but then an unknown American who was coming, who was known to be an evangelist, and the only thing people knew about him was he wore remarkably flashy ties. Uh, but apart from that, who is this man? Well, I say no one knew of him. That's what it appeared. But I know the church that I went to, we had heard about Billy Graham was coming, and we knew the day he was arriving. So we went up to London to Waterloo Station. Billy Graham had come over from America by sea, and uh, as a little 10-year-old, I heard that he was uh, arriving in Southampton and getting the boat train to London. As a 10-year-old, I thought, I conjured up a wonderful picture of a boat train. But anyway, it was just an ordinary train. Um, But we went up to, to, to Waterloo Station for when the train arrived from Southampton. What we discovered when we got there was that tens of thousands of people had done the same. And Waterloo Station was packed. Right down the platform, I think it was platform 11, I think. Um, and then the whole, if you know Waterloo Station, maybe it's northerners, you think that's down in the south, never been there. London is a place down in the south, okay. And Waterloo Station, the main concourse, massive area, you couldn't move. We were, I was 10, I was small, in the middle of this crowd where you couldn't move. When, the, when people moved, you just moved with them. It was scary, really. I mean, it was no place for a kid to be. As the train began to come in down the end of the platform, obviously we didn't see it because you couldn't see anything. I couldn't see anything. I only see people around me. Down the far end of the platform, as the train came in, people started singing. As I recall, they started singing a hymn, To God be the glory, great things he had done, with the chorus, Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the heavens rejoice, and so on. People just can't remember the words. So I was singing. And then this song began to swell right up Waterloo Station till the whole concourse was people singing at the top of their voices, Praise the Lord, and singing about Jesus. Now, why do I tell you that? Because I saw something then of a totally secular environment resounding to the praises of King Jesus. And that deeply impressed me. And I thought, and of course, if you know the history, you'll know that that, uh, he came for just a short crusade. It got extended, extended, extended. And people would pour out of those meetings into the underground system in London, and, and then hymns would resound around the tunnels. People just singing the praise of Jesus. The city was impacted. That wasn't revival. It was a remarkable work of God. It wasn't revival. But that, that tells me when God moves, communities are suddenly incredibly impacted. And I, since then, have longed to be in, in a similar situation where we're in, say, a city. You, know, you read in, in, Roman, in, in Acts 8 that when Philip went down to Samaria and he preaches Jesus, there was great joy in that city. 
I want to hear, I want to be here in Sheffield when Sheffield is just, you just hear people singing the praise of Jesus all over the place. Great joy in the city. God can do it. Nineveh, the whole city repented when you've got an unwilling, unbelieving prophet. But God moved. And suddenly the whole city is impacted. What can happen when you've got a church that's full of the Spirit, believing in Jesus, passionate about Jesus, and God moves? What can happen in a city? We've got vision. We love Jesus. We're passionate. It's for all nations, beginning where we are, but then every nation. Can you imagine Saudi Arabia? Echoing to the praise of Jesus. Can you imagine the Yemen, Pakistan? When it's no longer dangerous to become a Christian, it's unusual not to be one. Can you believe for that? Jesus. Jesus. He's the Lord. Through him, everything that exists was made. And it was from him, Paul tells us in chapter 11 of Romans, from him, through him, and to him. It's all for him. Therefore, we believe for every nation. We've got an indignation that nations are how they are, that people are how they are, not knowing him. We love him. They want, we want them to know him. And we've got vision for communities and nations to be turned. Surely, God intends to do it. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. We've got promises so we believe it. And therefore, we've got a strong motivation. We're committed to seeing the church how God wants it to be because it's through the church that the wisdom of God's going to be made known. We're committed to reaching out to all types of people, all ages, and going where God sends. It's... It motivates us. It's the reason for our being here. We will believe for miracles, for healing, for displays of power, to confirm the word of God so that people see he's the Lord. We're not just talking a theory. We're not just talking about a name even. He's Lord. And he does things and he displays his mighty power. And therefore we're motivated to give. We're motivated to pray. We're motivated... Because we've got a vision and we're believing it. That's Paul is saying to the Romans, you don't know me yet, but I'm writing to you so you know what I'm about. And this is what it's about. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our Lord. It says, through him, we receive grace and apostleship for obedience of faith among all nations for the sake of his name. Ah, Paul, a remarkable man. We can say, well, yeah, put him on a pedestal. We can't possibly be like that. Why has God told us these things? Well, Paul said to people, be imitators of me. And we want to see that and be stirred and say, yep, that's what it means. We're slaves of Christ Jesus. He's bought us. He's wonderful. We want to live for him. And we want people to know him. God's announcement about his son deserves our passion. God's announcement about his son deserves that we give it priority. It's wonderful. This is not insignificant. This is not just something for a couple of hours a week. This is life-changing stuff. 
God announces his son to a world that maybe doesn't want to hear. But as God, because God announces his son, we want to announce his son as well. We want anyone who will listen to know we know Jesus. He's the Lord. He's wonderful. You need to know him.